Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. I also want to just, if you walked in late, reiterate what Steve said earlier in the announcements, that we have an open house at our house from 4 to 7. We live a half a mile up the road, so if you're visiting, um, see me. I can give you directions, give you the address. We'd love for you to come. We've baked some cookies. Um, It would not be good for us if we ate them all ourselves. So we, we need your help to come and for the sake of our health and for fellowship with you guys. So you're welcome. You're all invited, four to seven. Well, um, <clears throat> when I was in high school, I had this English teacher. Maybe some of your teachers stick out to you. This one sticks out to me because she would claim several times in her class that the Bible was the most dangerous book that had ever been written. And I remember at the time kind of naive, idealistic, prideful. I was just greatly offended. How dare she call that book that I believed dangerous? I didn't think it was dangerous at all. I had come to understand the Bible as this nice, warm book. You know, chicken soup for the soul, as they say. It encourages you, comforts you. It tells you how special you are. At least that's what other people said about it. I never actually read it. I mean, I opened it. Because I had that teen study Bible with the life application points, and I thought they were cool. It's ironic that after 20 years of actually reading the Bible and being confronted with the Bible's claim on my life and the claim for who God is, and after 20 years of repenting for my sin, I kind of think that that English teacher, though she was not a Christian, was actually onto something. I don't mean to say that the Bible isn't good. And neither was she saying that, really. It is good. It's just not safe, to use the words of C.S. Lewis. We don't stand over the power, over the Bible, as if we have some, it's, it's some sort of magical power that we can conjure up and, and use for however we want. Rather, we stand under the Bible. And it confronts our addictions to pride and selfishness. And for that reason, it is very good. It is good because it calls us into the searing light of God's holiness. It's not safe, but it is good. And it's exactly what we need. And the passage for this morning talks about God's word. So we're going to talk about scripture this morning. It's the reason for this particular introduction. But that's not the only thing we're going to talk about. This sermon is going to be multi-themed today, so pay attention. If you were here with us for the last couple weeks, you'll know that Hebrews 4, as we're working through it, is a a passage, you know, the the larger larger section is a passage about God's rest. From chapter 3 on, we're talking about rest. And we're told over and over again to to realize that we are headed for rest. We've been warned in Hebrews about the danger of neglecting our relationship with God. And this passage that we're going to see this morning is is really interesting because it connects that reality of rest with the importance of Scripture. And so what we're going to see here this morning is this fascinating dance because between, on the one hand, the, the sovereign word of God and our human responsibility, what this word calls us to do. You see, friends, the Christian life is not simply about believing the right things or living the right way. 
It's about learning how to be in a relationship with a person where he calls us to act and his actions are effectual. But what we do is significant and we're held accountable. So let's turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 11 through 13, a short section, but there's a lot in here. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning with verse 11. Let us therefore strive, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But we are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Let's pray. Oh Lord, your word is a sword. And it pierces into our hearts. So Father, we pray that we who are here this morning would have ears to hear and eyes to see and that we would not resist your word, but we would apply your word diligently to our lives. Lord, help us think deeply about these things and respond rightly to you and rightly to one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, like I said before, this passage connects rest to the word of God. And I want to see two things here. First, I want to see our need to receive God's word rightly in order to enter his rest. That's the human responsibility part. Our need to receive rightly God's word, to deal rightly with God's word. And second, the power of God's word in order to lead us into rest. So our need to receive it rightly and its power. The first point is actually a lot of review, but I can't really help that. Notice here in this passage how much it's connected with what he already said. And it begins, therefore, which obviously implies he's referring to something else. And notice there that he talks about enter into that rest. He's already referred to that rest. And he talks about the sort of disobedience that he's already mentioned. So, so really this passage is intricately connected with what we've seen before And really, this passage is a conclusion of the argument that he's making so far. And at the same time, it concludes the argument about rest. So it's it's like the argument about rest is landing right here on these verses. And at the same time, another argument about the superiority and sufficiency of Christ is jumping off. So so this passage that we're looking at is a transition moment, a, a joint, you could say, in the book of Hebrews. And notice the joint is God's word. That that connects these things together. So point number one, we need to learn about our need to receive God's word, to enter into his rest. Now, if you remember, the author of Hebrews has been using this extended uh, metaphor, motif, you could say, that the church today is like the wilderness generation back in the time of the Old Testament. If you remember from the book of Exodus, the nation of Israel came out of Egypt and they were headed to the promised land. 
But in that, between that, out of Egypt and to the promised land, they were, they were in the desert. We call that the, the desert generation. And the church, likewise, is on a journey. We are called out of the world, and we are headed to the place of rest. But unfortunately, back in the time of Israel, not all who made it out of Egypt actually made it to the promised land. Some perished. Some fell along the way. And the author of Hebrews does not want that to happen for those in the church. Now, the reason why they perished along the way was unbelief. They never really believed in the first place. Um, We saw earlier in the book of Hebrews, it says that they, those who perished in the wilderness, were not united by faith with those who listened to God's word. Last week, we talked about in Israel at that time, there were some people who were with the people of God, but not truly of the people of God. And that's shocking, disturbingly shocking, if we think about all that those people had been through. Think about it. Those who came out of Egypt had all seen the plagues upon the Egyptians, right? And they stood at the Red Sea and saw God part the Red Sea, and they walked on dry ground, and the Egyptian army were drowned. And yet, throughout all of that, they still never really believed God. And so when they got to a part of their journey that required a hard act of faith, like, for instance, when God led them to the brink of the promised land, and they looked over at the land that God had said he had given them, and God told them to enter it and take it, when they looked over at that land, they said, no, thank you, God. I'd rather go back to Egypt. There's no way we can get in there. Look, the people are too big. They didn't take God at his word. And the author explains that their hearts were hardened because of unbelief. Unbelief turned them against God's word, so they did not want to receive it or believe it. And they perished, and they fell in the wilderness. And now the church that the author of Hebrews is writing to, or preaching to, um, It was now in one of those hard places of testing. There was persecution. Some of them had been put in prison. Life was getting harder because of their faith. And so the author of Hebrews warns them, strive to enter that rest so that you do not fall by the same sort of obedience, of disobedience. The sort of disobedience is the decisive unbelief that Israel exemplified when they did not go into the land, when they hardened their hearts and, and disbelieved the word of God. Now, friends, it's worth pointing out that not all disobedience has that devastating effect. Because, I mean, let's face it, all of us disobey God in some way or another every day. I mean, God calls us to be holy like he is holy, and and none of us rise to that. That doesn't necessarily mean that we've fallen. Friends, God is amazingly patient with us. When we temporarily forget what he's called us to do, he is long-suffering. The Bible stresses over and over again that he forgives our iniquities. But... Oh, and I should also say that when, we, when there is repentance after we've done something wrong, that actually serves to strengthen our relationship with God and builds us deeper into God's word. God even uses our sin to grow us closer to him. 
But we can perish by the same sort of disobedience when we conclude, either intellectually or emotionally, that God's word really isn't true and that he really isn't worth believing in and trusting in. And now, to be clear, uh, some of you might be a little concerned, okay, what theology am I saying? No, a believer cannot lose his or her salvation. Once you've truly trusted in Jesus, there's nothing you can do to unchristian yourself. The Bible's clear on that. But the Bible's also clear that just like back in the time of the Old Testament, there are some who can claim to be Christians and followers of Jesus and be even persuaded they are, and yet that not actually be the case. Jesus said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I will say, depart, for I never knew you. So the sort of disobedience that the author of Hebrews is talking about here is, is he's really talking about the kind that just exposes that unbelief had been ruling our hearts from the very beginning. The point that we need to take from this is that there is an urgency to our striving. We have to keep pressing forward. The text here tells us that when we stop striving, that's when we become hardened to God's word. Strive to enter the rest so that, it's a purpose clause here, you're not hardened. You're not falling into that sort of disobedience where you fall. So either we're striving forward, repenting of our sin, open to God's word, growing, or we're becoming hardened. There really isn't a a middle ground here. Now, this is a a difficult topic, a sensitive topic. Uh, and, And there was a time in my life when if I were to have heard a message like this, it would have put me in a state of anxiety. You know, where do I stand? Oh no, what do I do? Should we live in fear? Is that what God wants us to do? Well, according to the book of Hebrews overall, the answer to that question is clearly no. Hebrews chapter 2 talks about how Jesus has died in order to take away the fear of death. And Hebrews, if it says anything, talks a lot about having confidence and boasting in our hope. No, the author of Hebrews does not want us to live in fear. It's kind of like this. Suppose uh, I look out at many of you having young kids, and I see them, and that's great. I'm, I'm glad they're here with us. Uh, but, but suppose you have young kids, or at least even one child, and you're going to go into this crowded place. Uh, we recently took our, our kids to this convention in D.C., and, and we were kind of preparing them ahead of time. Oh, what are you going to do if you get lost? And, and our four-year-old said, cry. That was her answer. <laughs> Yes, okay, what else are you going to do? If you're going to go with kids in a crowded place, there's a, really, there's a very real danger, right? And you want to prepare your kids for that. So you're going to say to your kids, it's dangerous out there. I don't want to lose you. So you need to hold on to my hand. If you hold on to my hand, you'll be okay. Now, in warning your child like that, do you want them to be afraid? Well, in one sense, yes, and in one sense, no. If they don't take your word seriously, and they feel free just to, you know, roam wherever they want to, then yes, you want them to be afraid. Your warning is designed to induce fear. But if they do take your word seriously, and if they do stay close to you, then you do not want them to be afraid. 
Your warning is actually designed to, to give them confidence, to help them see that they are okay. So friends, if you are believing in God's word, if you are actively listening to him and striving after him, if you're doing that, then you have nothing to fear. So friends, if you are feeling right now anxiety about this passage, well, that, that could be a sign that your heart is actually open to God's word. If you're willing to repent of your sin and, and go deeper into God's word, then, then have more confidence that you do belong to him. Friends, how are you responding to God's word? Here are a few questions to, uh, to consider. Is there in your heart a, a growing coldness to God's word? Are you just not really excited about it? You know, rather watch TV. Is there a growing apathy to God's word? You just really don't care what it says to you. Is there a growing confidence in something else in place of God's word? Maybe you're having a struggle or, or you need help with something. You, you need, to, you know, something to hit you on the, the head and, and give you a perspective and you go instead to self-help books or, or blogs. When you read a passage or have a passage read to you like Jeremiah where it says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Do you, if you're brutally honest with yourself, just simply not believe that that's true? Are you living like it's not true? Are you beginning to just doubt the veracity of Scripture? Maybe it really isn't, as the Apostle Paul says, inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Well, why should I believe the Bible unless it can sort of be backed up by something else? Well, friends, how do you challenge a heart that is getting hard to God's Word? And how do our hearts stay striving after God? Well, that leads us to the second point. The power of God's word to lead us into rest. The word is used in, that, in our lives in order to keep us striving after him, to break up our hard hearts. Look there at verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing as far as the divisions of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, I think this passage in its context, in the flow of argument, is really functioning in two different ways. First, it's functioning as a warning for those who are not striving, those who are becoming hardened to God's word. And the warning is that God's word will find you out. It is, after all, living and active. That is, God's word has a power all in and of itself. This is what God means in the book of Isaiah when he says, the word that goes out from my mouth will not return void, but will accomplish what I desire. It accomplishes the reality for which it was intended. It is effectual. It can do it all by itself. It's living and active. And the reason why God's word is living and active is God's word is identified with himself. Notice how in this passage, I love it, look at the transition from uh, verse 12 to 13, and notice how the subject switches um, almost imperceptibly. It talks about the word of God is living and active, so the word of God is the subject, and then 
Verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight. We are all naked and exposed before him. It's talking about the word, and then it switches to be talking about God himself. You almost don't realize that it happens so quickly. And scripture teaches us that God is identified with his word. So sometimes in the Bible, we read about a particular thing being ascribed to God's word, or that same particular thing being ascribed to God himself. So God created the heavens and the earth, and how did he do that? He spoke, and it was. His word is living and active. And the author here presents the word in this way as an argument for why we should not harden our hearts and fall. And the argument is that it's really useless to resist God's word because it will have its way in the end. We may resist God's word all the way to the point when we die. But when we wake up, we will be confronted with God's word in a whole different way. Look there at verse 13. It ends by saying, we must give an account before him. But the, the Greek, it's a little bit different. Literally, it says, he is the one to whom we must speak a word. So, so verse 12 begins with the word in Greek for word, and verse 13 ends with the word in Greek for word. God's word is this way. The, the idea is, because God's word is what it is, at the end of the day, we must give a word to him. He will for, we, we cannot ignore him forever. He will force us to respond. And therefore, we ought to pay attention to what he says now. You see, in the moment when we stand before him, we will meet his word as a sword, and it will cut down deeply into our lives, exposing before him, before the only one who really matters, who we really are. And we will see ourselves as naked before him. We cannot, at that point, hide behind our achievements, our good works, our clever personality. No, God will see you for who you really are, and he will see that it is not good and you will have to give an answer. And the author of Hebrews tells the people that now so that they will stop resisting God's word. As I was thinking about this and preparing it, I, the image that came in my mind, I remember being in gym class in middle school. Kind of odd that my mind jumped there, but nevertheless it did. And I remember that I kept having to, in, in gym class we did wrestling, and, and I was always sent out to wrestle this really big guy. It was like David and Goliath minus the Spirit of God. And I, every time I would lose, it would, it would be inevitable. He would overpower me and it, it would not end well. And that's sort of like what it is like for us to resist God's word, except the gap between our ability to resist and the word of God is infinitely stronger. The word functions as a judgment for those who stubbornly resist. But I think the author wants to use this truth in another way, too, in that the word functions as salvation for those who receive it. But, and listen to this, because it's really important, the way the word saves us is first by judging us. If we resist to the bitter end, it will judge us, and that is all. But if we put ourselves under God's judgment now, under the judgment of his word now, then that judgment will lead us to salvation. 
You see, the word of God exposes our hearts now for what they really are. The word of God exposes our folly, our immaturity. It helps us see as we live our day-to-day lives that we're not as put together as we would like to think we are. And if we accept the word's judgment of us now, it leads us to flee to Christ, who is the Savior. If you have your Bibles open, all you have to do is skip down to the next set of verses, starting at verse 14, and you'll see that there he talks, I'm not going to say much about these verses now because that's for a later sermon, but he talks about how Jesus is the great high priest who understands our weaknesses and temptations, and he exhorts us to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace where we receive mercy and grace in time of need. Friends, it's no accident that these two sections are put right next to each other. As I said before, this passage is a transition point. He's concluding that section on rest and our need to persevere and strive to enter. And then he's going to jump off to the great high priest, Jesus, who helps us, who who understands our weaknesses and says, come to me and I will help you. And the bridge between those two realities is the word of God. The word of God stands over us in judgment that we may flee to Christ. As I've been reading uh, lately of the uh, theologian Martin Luther, he has understood this concept well. Few people in the history of the church have seen so clearly, as as Luther did, the the all-sufficiency of Christ. I mean, Luther was the one in history who, who helped reawaken the church to justification by faith, that I stand before God based upon the righteousness of Christ that is given to me. And yet, as I read Luther, few people in the history of the church have understood the importance of the law to take away any pretense of self-justification and drive us back to Christ, not just for the initial moment in which we are saved, but again and again and again. In light of the judgment of God, we see how desperate our time of need really is. We need him. Uh, Let me take a moment now to just think with you about how it is that the word of God penetrates more deeply than anything else. What does that judgment look like for believers? Well, think about how there are various ways in which we might judge the human condition, right? I mean, first of all, we may as we often do, simply evaluate life superficially. We look at ourselves in our own little world, and we might think, oh, this horrible thing is happening to me. I don't have any money. I'm sick. Nobody likes me. I must be terrible. Or we might think, I'm rich. I have great health. I'm uber, uber popular. Ergo, I must be pretty okay. But, of course, that's exceedingly superficial. And many people, even in the world, reject that kind of, you know, surface-level assessment of who we are. So we go a little deeper, and we ask about what we are doing in life. All of life is a stage, right? We are its actors. We are always doing something. Our behavior matters. And it's a mix of good and bad. We know the difference between a good thing and a bad thing. Sometimes we do a good thing, but often we do a bad thing. And we can judge ourselves based on how we do and whether or not our, our actions fit the standard of right and wrong. Friends, this is getting a little bit closer to the true judgment of things, right? Jesus said that we can know a, fruit by, know a tree by its fruit. But we still need to climb down a little bit deeper on another level and recognize 
that that fruit is connected to a root. And the root is our reasons for our actions, our motive. We are prideful or jealous or loving or generous. We crave something, desire something, need something, believe something. And out of that heart, as the Bible describes it, we act. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. But the Bible, and I would argue the Bible alone, goes one step deeper still. Because the thoughts and intentions of the heart, as this, word, as this passage describes it, are always in relationship to God. We know that because of the way verse 13 explicitly says how we are exposed before the eyes of the one who matters most. Thus, all of our hoping and longing and loving and hating and wanting and believing is seen at the end of the day in relationship to who God is. And it drives out of our relationship with God. See, in this way, the Bible doesn't simply judge our bad works, the works we do that do not conform to his will. The Bible actually judges our good works, too. Did we really do those things out of love for God? Or was it simply to get approval from others? Was it trying to earn something or prove something? The Bible penetrates all the way into the deepest place of who we are as we stand before the Holy God. And there's absolutely nothing to hide behind. And if we wait until that final day of judgment, it will pierce us in judgment and lead only to eternal and absolute destruction. But if we put ourselves under God's word now, as uncomfortable as that might be, the Bible is not safe. If we do that, we'll have to let go of some things that we hold tightly to. And letting go of those things can feel like death. But friends, it is the kind of death that leads to life. As I was meditating on this passage, I couldn't help but think about all the ways in which God's word has confronted my own heart. And I thought some examples of how, this, of how the Bible exposes our hearts would be helpful. So let me just share a few with you from my life. If you don't have these same examples, that is completely fine. But I hope you have some examples. As I read the Bible, Psalm, so here are a few passages that have exposed my heart. Psalm 130 always challenges me. In that Psalm, David talks about his heart in a state of complete rest before God. David's soul is placid, smooth, no ripples, and that exposes all the waves of restlessness in my heart. I see my soul as a fussy child kicking and screaming, not wanting to be content. Or James talks about the man who is double-minded and unstable in all his ways because he asks for wisdom and yet at the same time doubts God's word. And I thought, and I heard that, that passage preached at one point and it, it cut me because I thought that's exactly who I am. Because I say I believe God's word and yet I'm not wholeheartedly trying to follow him. I'm hedging my bets just in case obeying him doesn't really work out. And I realize no wonder my life feels so incredibly unstable. Or Psalm 63, when David says to God, your love is better than life. That has helped me see that I don't actually live that way. And all the Psalms around there in the 60s talk about God as the absolute rest 
and rock and the thing that is entirely stable. And if we go to him, we will have true rest. And then I see that I'm not finding him as my refuge. And no wonder it feels so restless. Or when I read the book of Revelation sometimes, it challenges me as to whether or not I am really looking forward to the life to come. I ask myself, let's say the book of Revelation wasn't there and there were no promises of the future. Would my Christian life actually look any different? And if not, that reveals that I'm living for the wrong thing. And no wonder my present success and comfort seems to be all that matters. Or Ephesians 1 says that I am blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And in this I should rejoice. And this challenges me as to whether or not I really believe it. While those are just a few of the ways in which my heart has been ripped open and exposed by God's word. I see myself as standing before him and that is all that matters. Friends, what passages have challenged your heart recently? What passages have revealed pride or envy or lack of love or selfishness or a false refuge in something other than God? Friends, I'm not asking what passages make you feel good. Uh, There are passages that should make us feel good. The gospel is something to rejoice in. But, But that's a different question. The next few verses in the book of Hebrews, I said, talk about Jesus as the great high priest. That should make us feel very good. But what verses have you read recently that exposed your heart for what it is, making you see how much you need his grace? Well, I want to close with a few thoughts on this passage as to how it applies to us as a church. Remember I said that, that this, this book is, is probably a sermon. It addresses a church. A church filled with people who are facing difficulties. A people who are struggling along the way. A church where some people are so discouraged that they're, they're tempted to give up. Sounds pretty perennial, doesn't it? And, and the... Uh, message from the author of Hebrews is just to stay on course. Hold fast to the confidence you have in Christ. A real rest awaits the children of God. And here we see that the word is absolutely crucial to entering in that that rest. God's word is powerful. So we have no choice but to submit to it. And for those who submit to it, God's word reveals our sin, which drives us to Christ. I think what's going on here, you could say, is that God's sovereign word creates a context where our actions matter. And we need to remember both of those things. The word is sovereign. It exposes our sin. It creates life. The word speaks not only that word of judgment to us, but it also speaks the word of Christ to us that we may be saved. God's word is effectual. It accomplishes. And that effectualness of God's word creates a context where our actions matter. So friends, how do we bring these two things together in the life of the church? Well, first of all, we want God's word to be central in everything you do. We do, and you do. If you've been here with us for a while, I think you, you know that. We make preaching a priority. That's the number one thing that Steve and I give ourselves to, is preparing messages to feed you with God's word. 
the word will cause the reformation of the church. Martin Luther is famous for saying about the reformation, the Protestant reformation. He says, I was drinking beer with my friend Philip Melanchthon and the word accomplished the reformation of the church. He says, I did nothing. The word did everything. And in one sense, I want to amend that slightly and say that I was drinking coffee with Steve and some other people. And the word of God has done everything that it's done here at this church. Very aware of whatever good life that God has brought in this church has been through his word. But Luther said that at the beginning of his ministry, after some initial success. And Lutheran scholars think that as he got older, he would have revised his statement just a little. He was still drinking beer. But he would have said that even though the word does everything, that doesn't mean we do nothing. The sovereign word creates a context where our actions matter. And friends, we as a church need to build on that context so that the word of God can have the effect that God intends it to. And Jonathan Lehman, our friend who uh, wrote a great book called Reverberation, says this in it. He says, the ministry of the word indeed begins in the pulpit, but then it must continue throughout the life of the church as members love this word, echo God's word back and forth to one another. That's the idea of reverberation. That reverberation makes the church not simply a bunch of people who happen to hear the same message while driving down uh, the road in their car on the radio. We are a community of people who then, after hearing God's word, echo it back and forth. So the work of this sermon might be almost done for me, but it has only begun for us as we as a church echo the word back and forth. So friends, are you echoing the word in your home? Are you talking about the sermon with others, with your family? Are you teaching it? Are you echoing the word in your friendships? Do you get together with other members of the church and talk about the effect that God's word is having in your life? Friends, this doesn't have to be formal. In my experience, sometimes where you have a real formal approach to that, what happens is it gets off real good in the beginning, but then peters out very quickly. It has to be a grassroots, informal thing where we realize individually and collectively the need to be talking about God's word. Are you echoing God's word with unbelievers? You know, one of the most encouraging comments I've gotten about sermons is where somebody says, oh, I was talking to my non-Christian friend about uh, the passage you preached on the other day. Echo it to unbelievers. And friends, does the word of God echo in your own hearts? Does any encouragement or conviction that you receive on Sunday mornings from Sunday last any further than Sunday afternoon? Do you make a conscious effort to go back to the word again? Read the passage over again. Read the passage before Sunday. That's why we have a a sermon card and send it out on the internet. Friends, let us go deeper in using the the context that the, the sovereign word creates to grow, to strive. I want to close by just reading the passage one more time. And I want to not just stop at 
verse 13, but I want to go a little bit further to pique your interest for what will come. Friends, receive this as the word of God. Today, as you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but let God's judgment come to you now that you will be driven to salvation and know him more. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but we are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray.